0: What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to the News for New York Debrief podcast. We thank you for being with us. For the time being, The Debrief is going to focus on our coverage of race and racism, and how race and bias intersect with various aspects of society. We're hoping to paint a fuller picture of issues that have always been with us, but surged to the top of the nation's consciousness with the killing of George Floyd. And this week, we focus on a story that was really emotional on our air. It was eye-opening for some, and all too familiar for others. It's the issue of driving while black, and the concerns and the fears about encounters between African Americans on law enforcement in otherwise routine traffic stops. Pat Battle brought this story to us. Let's listen to a part of it right now. But to take the penultimate ride on The prices Right is to get
1: this far.
0: With your brand new car!
1: I wanna show you the first number of the price of the car. And when those numbers light up, what red-blooded American wouldn't feel what Teji Vega felt? And on his 18th birthday?
2: This felt like an eternity, just waiting for that number. And as soon as I like felt the pause, like the extra pause, I knew I had won the car. Yes! It was a phenomenal experience, oh my goodness. I still, I still can't believe actually happened.
1: It was so surreal, so much joy and excitement, and then reality set in. His mom was in the audience, her hands shaking, she says, as she signaled that last winning number.
0: Three. How about a three, please? Yes!
1: As Teji dropped to his knees, her heart sank in her chest. I was like, can we trade it for a hot tub? My 18-year-old black, Latino son does not need a car and what's gonna be the problems that he's gonna encounter. Make no mistake, for red-blooded black Americans, there's a price to pay for getting behind the wheel. Studies, statistics, and surveys all say that black drivers are far more likely to be pulled over than white ones. They're also more likely to have guns pointed at them by police, to be detained, handcuffed, searched, and arrested. What's the feeling when those lights go on behind you?
2: Fear, panic. Am I going to get home today?
1: Even in broad daylight, driving that Chevy Cruze through his own hometown, the sight of a police car is cause for concern. So was Teji and Seti are brothers. Kari is their first cousin. For him, the fear is paralyzing. He doesn't even want a driver's license. At 20 years old, mom and dad still take him everywhere.
2: When I went to high school, I didn't really have a lot of people who looked like me, but they were all super excited to drive when they hit the age of 16. They all started practicing, and I just never really had that excitement. And when I was really digging deep about it, I realized it was probably because of the fear of being pulled over and then having my life maybe be taken away. Don't
1: pull it off. Ah, he no. was trying to get out his ID. Philando Castile, shot dead in front of a four-year-old child. Know Maurice Gordon, shot by a New Jersey state trooper after a traffic stop went sideways. And Tamir Rice, he wasn't even old enough to drive. He was 12 when he was shot. They're just some of the names that haunt these young men. Because, you know, you never know.
2: And, like, you can dress as nice as you want and be as, you know, look as as proper as you want, and you'll still be seen as something less than a normal person or as a threat just due to the color of your skin.
1: Listen, our lives are in danger, and uh, and that's a shame. It's like Teji said yesterday, I can't take my black off. A cop can take his uniform off, put his gun away, take his badge off, but I can't take my black off. This anxious mom points to the fact that these three are college students, the younger ones, graduates of one of Bergen County's most competitive and prestigious high schools. I wish I could stamp their GPA on their forehead. I wonder if somebody would respect them differently and look at them differently. Short of that, there's the talk, something virtually every black parent has had with their children, and it starts young.
2: I can remember back to third, fourth grade, uh, where you know, I was going to a birthday party and my dad, he would say, you guys have to remember who you are. You guys are black men in this country.
1: Rona and Victor Vega started that lesson early. My basic
0: instruction is that you guys just have to be a little wiser in terms of how you communicate and not agitate the situation any more than it is. What's the protocol when, when a pop comes up behind you?
2: Make sure your hands are always in, in view of the cop. Turn your phone on, turn your voice recorder on. Make sure you're announcing what you're about to do before you do it, so they don't assume you're about to make any gestures that you don't have the intentions of.
0: Passed by a cop,
2: and you gotta be extra careful. 10-2, make sure that everything's correct so that if you do get stopped, there won't be a reason or they can't make up a reason.
0: Well, this is a constant rehearsal. It's not it's not a, a chapter that's closed. No no Killing of George Floyd was a, another page being turned based on the history of this country. These three are determined
1: to have a voice in that next chapter. They've launched Solidarity Sundays, a bi-monthly Zoom meeting with their peers, parents, and community aimed at sharing, supporting, and strategizing. My name is Seti Vega, and I wanted to speak to you guys a bit about um, Black Economics. They protested and demonstrated and demanded change. We've had changes in legislature and changes in
2: the government, and it doesn't change the intent in people's hearts. Like, we we were freed, the slaves were freed. That didn't mean they looked at us any differently. We were allowed to go, black people were allowed to go to the same schools as white people, and, and it didn't really change how they looked at us in those schools.
1: Processing that truth and their place in this country is a never-ending conversation, but a necessary one for Teji, Seti, and Kari.
2: In the eyes of almost all Americans, black folks are a threat. In the media, through movies, they're portrayed as, you know, quote-unquote thugs, quote-unquote people who don't have empathy, and that's just not right. The best way to get them to look is to flood the media that they consume currently with uh, what we're saying, like stuff like this, these kind of interviews, uh, to get them to, I guess, even just look our way. If you change one viewpoint, then maybe that person can change another person's viewpoint, and it's just a trickle down effect. I think we'll know that we've really reached a point where this country is not like racially prejudiced when young African Americans can not have to worry about wearing a hoodie at night, as where our white counterparts don't feel that same threat. It's the little things that they don't really realize that they have the advantage in where you see the problem. And I think. Like us trying to explain something like that to them, there's a disparity because they don't really, they can't feel it.
0: Just a really phenomenal story. It brought all aspects of this issue to light. And we're actually happy to have Pat on the phone with us now. Pat, happy you're here with us. When that story aired, you and I talked about it afterward. We got a chance to go deeper on it, and we want to go even deeper here on The Debrief.
1: Yeah, David, I got so many emails and, and, uh, it's on Instagram from people saying just that. I'm so glad that you, it, we kept it real. I mean, because from you and me, yeah. it is real. Right. This it every day. And frankly, I was, I was surprised at how many of our non-black friends, colleagues, et cetera, viewers, had no idea what this meant. And we've been talking about it for years. Right. But I guess, you know, I think what really drove that story home, David, was that it was that quintessential American experience of winning a car yeah. that you can't really enjoy.
0: Pat, listening to it, I thought for others, especially in the suburbs, like teenagers getting their license is a really big step. It's a big milestone for all teenagers, really. And you really captured the angst, though, that it brings for African-American parents. I mean, all parents fear... They're teenager driving around. They have concerns when they're really young. But for African-Americans, there's this added weight and fear. Am I right?
1: Absolutely. It, it grips your heart every time they walk out the door. In fact, not just even when they're driving. But you're right. It is it is a rite of passage. You know, you turn 16, oh, and you, you know, you're 16.01, and you're at, you know, you're in a motor right? vehicle trying to get that. Exactly. Exactly. But as you, as you saw in the piece, there was one of the young men, it is 20, and he hasn't even attempted to get his license. And he, he really thought deep down that, you know, it's this fear that that could happen to me. If I'm behind the wheel, I'll just stick with mom and dad. And, uh, it, it really is. I, when both my kids got their licenses, I, I felt the same way. It's like, and you have some bit of control, right? Because you can say, okay, be home by dark. You can only go this far, take my keys. But when, when, when Teji won that car and his mom realized, she had really, like, just given him a license to get pulled over, which he has, by the way, twice. Um, and, and it's the approach that, uh, you know, that, that an officer has uh, more, more often than not. The hand is on the gun when they yeah. walk
0: toward the car. Right. And that
1: is debilitating and frightening.
0: And so a young person's reaction can seem aggressive at first, but it's really coming from a place of fear. I absolutely. What
1: did I do? What did I do? Right. And then, you know, then at that agitates the situation and, yeah. and, you know, and it goes forward uh, because more often than not, they didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> I shouldn't say more often than not. In my son's case, uh, you know, it could be believed. <laughs> right. yeah. it, 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 it's nothing, Mom. They said I didn't pause long enough at the stop sign. Uh, you know, right. I had a tail light flicker. Yeah, something hanging from the rearview mirror. Just any excuse to, you know, to pull them over. Right. Um, and because they don't often don't know their rights with regard to searches, uh, reasonable, you know, reasonable to, to search the car. Uh, that is usually the the outcome. And so they're standing on the side of the road, humiliated, scared, frustrated, uh, while you know somebody's searching their car.
0: All right, a couple of questions for you, Pat. I, as you know, I was a little emotional after this aired. And I think it's because the young men you interviewed, I mean, this was so embedded in their approach to life. I mean, there are lessons we all learn, right? Like don't touch a hot stove, see cover in a tornado or hurricane. But for your sin and these young men, I mean, this is just a part of their being. And they are so kind of matter of fact about it. And I found that emotional. What is this like?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's been ingrained. It's it's part of their psyche, and for my son as well. Ever since they were old enough to understand, um, you know, what, what what the differences between races. Uh, we, you know, we've had to talk about it. You have to maintain a certain decorum in in, in almost every circumstance. Please take off your hoodie when you walk into Seven Eleven. You know, because you automatically look suspect. Now, white kid walking in doesn't, but you do. Um, you know, it, I told you, my son can't walk the dog at night because with a hoodie on, even if it's raining because I'm afraid that he's going to be viewed as a suspect. Follow those kids. Um, they live about a mile apart, their cousins. And uh, they used to walk to each other's homes when they were younger. And uh, the mom describes how the police would, you know, Kind of tail them, go up, make a U turn, come see what you know, and 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 it's in your own neighborhood, and it just gives you a sense of such insecurity, and 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 not being safe from the people who are here to keep you safe, mm-hmm. and that's what's frightening to them, and of course they know the stories because we make sure they know the stories so that they don't forget. Hands on the wheel, dome light on, license in your hand eye contact. Yes, sir. No, sir. They all know that it's the drill. It's a drill and it starts young.
0: Pat, one of the things that we talked about and sometimes people say, frankly, white people in particular, they'll say, look, we're all supposed to comply with the police officer's commands. And if everyone does that, there shouldn't be a problem. What do you say when you
1: <laughs> I laugh because we are complying. We're pulled over. Right? The kids pulled over, they're doing everything right. But they are like you said, David, it comes from a place of fear. And for a white driver who probably who gets pulled over maybe for speeding a broken taillight or whatever, they don't have that added fear. You're complying, but the officer doesn't see you in the same light that he sees a young black male and a female or a female. It, it, uh, sadly it it's it's kind of uh, it, it goes both ways. I mean i I got an email from a colleague of ours uh, at the network who Mm -hmm. who just said, you know, he just keeps thinking of his own parents, and he's in his 50s, having the talk with me at different stages of my life. See, it never ends. It just never ends, David, for us. And so complying for us, um, you know, the mom in that piece said something about, uh, to the effect of Keji mentioning, he can't take his black off. Right. You know, so right. it's almost like you automatically are, are are assumed to be suspect. I'm not saying a suspect, but you're automatically assumed to be suspect to police simply because of the color of your skin. So whether you're complying or not, sadly, it's not enough.
0: Exactly. Pat, the other thing you'll hear sometimes is that African Americans aren't otherwise supportive of law enforcement or believe in law enforcement. They'll say that, look, there's a lot of black-on-black crime And it just seems like many African-Americans aren't aware or they're not appreciative of what law enforcement is up against. But that's oversimplifying it, Pat, right? That's just not the case. No,
1: absolutely not. I mean, you know, many of us have family members who are in law enforcement. We understand what law enforcement is up against. But sometimes, well, too often it feels like we're up against law enforcement. Um, and, And unfortunately, because urban areas, minority neighborhoods are generally considered to be higher crime areas considered to be, and I say that because you don't know what's going on behind somebody's lovely, you know, front door in Alpine or Crest but um, because, and and police tend to patrol in those communities more often, then it it almost becomes like a catch-22. You're looking for something, you're going to find it uh, if if you're looking for it. We saw that with regard to even uh, the the, uh, social distancing court. We would see groups of people in some neighborhoods dispersed with know, call and maybe a megaphone or you know but you find four young black men sitting on a stoop and one has to be taken to the ground and, and, you know it, it was it, it, we saw it it's visible it's tangible david it's just the regard that unfortunately it, it's just ingrained it, that's the systemic racism when we talk about that the cop may say i'm not a racist and and, and, and and may believe that but if you look at somebody and see them as a potential suspect simply because they're black or brown
0: you. Yes, Pat, before we go, sometimes I like to share some of the insight into our reporting process. And You know, look, you and I are from an era of journalists. We're supposed to be objective observers, right? We're not supposed to become part of the story. We're supposed to just tell both sides of the story. But we're all having a reckoning right now about what that's supposed to mean. And this one is emotional. And you have a connection to it. Take us through your thought process of why you wanted to do this story and how you were going to do it.
1: Well, David, you're 100 percent correct, and I mean, I'll never forget Ed Bradley and I having a conversation one day about being black and being a journalist. And he says, "I'm a journalist who happens to be black. Right. That's the way you want to be regarded." But. You cannot negate the fact that you bring your life experience to everything that you do um, with regard to, you know, to your work. Just walk, you know, walking into a place And sometimes you forget, you know, you walk into a, a, an, a situation where you're the only person in the room or the only person in the community and you know, you're being regarded a certain way uh, and represented. But this story in particular, um, it is so deeply personal. It it really is for all of us. And so when I set out to do it, uh, as I said, that, that when that mom had told me, she told me not too long after her son won a car and it didn't didn't you know didn't resonate at all. That's right. how you want a car. But when I when I was decided to do the story, I wanted to bring it home to as many people as possible. And I got a lot of emails too from my white viewers saying I had no idea I'm going to talk to my children. I'm gonna to talk to my family and that really lifted me up. But yeah so when, when I reached out to her, I, and I Absolutely. knew one of the three Absolutely. boys or vaguely, was I know my daughter, but I, I, I knew that they were very representative. of what All of, of you know, black men are experiencing these days. Yep. And, um, Mm-hmm. So I I mm-hmm. reached out to uh-huh. them, and I really didn't know uh-huh. where I was going to go with it, yeah. until uh-huh. we sat down, yeah. and it just, as you said, it was just right. so matter-of-fact. It's not like if this ever happens exactly. to me, it's when it happens to yeah. me, this is how I react, because it has happened to me. And um, and as I said, I didn't really know these kids well, but uh, it just made such an impact on me and, and my photographer, sitting there listening to him right. is almost right. in tears. Uh, and he's, he's a man of color, he, but uh, right. he's a Latino. But it was really just um, one of those stories that I felt like if we could help people understand the mindset, how we feel so persecuted all the time, and we can't take it off, uh, that maybe, just maybe, as one young man said, if you change one mind, maybe that person can impact another, and it's a trickle-down. And very slowly, we'll get to a place where my son can walk into Seven Eleven on a rainy day with his hood on and have the clerk smile at him instead of flip the camera and follow him through the store, you know? And um, But it is. It's deeply personal, and I'm i am so gratified that, that we are doing these kinds of stories, and I thank you for what the debrief is doing because, it, it, listen, it can't be told by anyone who hasn't really felt it and experienced it in the same way. Right. And uh, I just hope that as we're having, you know, this country is grappling with this reckoning on race, that uh, people will open their their eyes and most importantly their hearts, because you can't legislate that, right? <laughs> you can't. Can and uh, and and understand that we're all here. This is about humanity. It shouldn't be about black and white. It's about humanity. And um, it, we we really need. We have so much to overcome, but uh, these little steps little steps and uh, and I hope this story uh, is is a step along that that journey for us all.
0: Well, you have brought all of your extraordinary storytelling to bear on this one. And we certainly thank you for doing it.
1: Thank you so much for having me on and and for for keeping the conversation going, because that's what it's
0: got to be, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So before I start choking up again, and we're going to wrap this one up, thank you, Pat. And thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Ben Berkowitz, Darren Price, I'm your host, David Ushery. We'll see you next time for these important conversations